Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends, feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, tensions between the U.S. and Iran continue to rise and the bombing of a Saudi Arabian oil refinery doesn't help. Cable companies are complaining that some big retailers like Best Buy are selling you boxes to rip off the cable companies. And Purdue Pharma is the first to fall after the opioid addiction crisis. It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. All right, talking uh, in regard to uh, tensions uh, potentially flaring after uh, Saudi Arabia oil uh, infrastructure was uh, targeted over the weekend. Uh, U.S. President uh, Donald Trump blaming Iran. This could affect, uh, I guess, about 5% of the daily uh, oil output uh, in the world. Now, the tensions between U.S. and Iran continue to rise, obviously, with uh, discussions over uh, nuclear arsenals and such. Uh, now, with the situation that has happened in, in Saudi Arabia, certainly hasn't uh, done anything to help relations. Let's bring in Elliot Tepper, Emeritus Professor of Political Science, Carleton University. He is with us now. Elliot, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Good afternoon, Scott. So what do we know about what happened over the weekend? Uh, Obviously, Donald Trump is blaming Iran. What do we know as far as how much infrastructure has been damaged and uh, and who did this? Well, that's a bunch of questions. Uh, What we know is not necessarily the complete picture, and that's uh, typical of the Middle East. What we know is there was an attack on Saudi refining capacity, so this is a very critical component of the Saudi infrastructure in terms of supplying uh, significant portions of the world's oil. So it's a very serious attack. Uh, there's mixed stories. The uh, initial stories that 10 drones launched, uh, according to uh, the Houthi rebels in Yemen, from them uh, hit 500 miles away, uh, very precision-targeted strikes, but apparently there were 17 impacts. So now there's a a rumor going around, an unsubstantiated report that uh, cruise missiles may have also been involved, which uh, would raise raise the specter of um, a deeper military engagement than we initially knew. Uh, Who's being blamed for this? Who's being blamed? The Houthi rebels in Yemen have said, we did it. Yeah. they immediately took uh, credit or blame, and they have not only that, but implied in that, and it's very, I think it's getting lost in the, uh, in the concern about the spike in oil prices, is the fact that this is reprisal, in their view, from having been pummeled by Saudi Arabia uh, and the UAE and some Amer- a lot of American um, equipment, uh, Yemen has been just pummeled uh, for several a number of years now. And there's the world's largest humanitarian crisis. So basically what's happening is the Houthis are saying, we are striking back at the Saudis who have been attacking us. The complication, Scott, is that the Houthis are very closely working with Iran. Right. And Iran uh, immediately said, you cannot pin this on us because... President Trump immediately did. How does Iran feel about the attack and then being blamed for it? Well, right as we speak, uh, President Rouhani is actually in Ankara, Turkey. 
and I think uh, this we, somebody should keep an eye on this because it's the fifth summit about uh, what's going on in, in Syria, and that's something that nobody even talks about, and in particular Idlib, with Putin being there and, uh, and Erdogan and President Rouhani. So the three of them have just gone into closed-door session. They were supposed to be talking about the future of Syria, which is a very serious topic, and again, a huge humanitarian crisis, which we don't hear much about. Whether they will now get together and say, oh, by the way, there might be a war breaking out in the region, I suspect there's going to be a lot of talk going on behind closed doors on that side. Why this attack now? Nobody knows. Uh, There's speculation, and it runs along several lines, at least two lines. The major speculation is the Houthis, with Iranian support, or maybe the Iranians using the cover of the Houthis, have decided to strike at Saudi Arabia. And this could be a, a byproduct of what's going on in Yemen, this terrible war that's been going on. But it also is now, it's about to be, and if it hasn't, but uh, there will be speculation that all of this is happening because Donald Trump has such an incoherent and inconsistent policy, having raised the stakes severely with Iran by pulling out of the Iran deal, and Iran has retaliated uh, by threatening to block the Strait of Hormuz. And as you know, uh, lots of attacks, have, over 10 attacks have taken place there on oil. Uh, is this because the U.S. has t- basically an incoherent policy and is seen as weak? Would Iran, if they are involved, and which is highly likely, have taken such a serious step, Scott, if the U.S. hadn't been basically seen as a vulnerable, uh, inconsistent, and basically paper tiger power under Donald Trump. So this is the results of a, dis- a divisive world. This is, uh, this is splintered allies. That's one very good way to perceive it. Uh, the bottom line, however, is that this could lead to war. Yeah. And it could also, by the way, lead to a global recession. The war situation is that now more firepower is being, being put into play in an era, in an, over oil in an area that's already very uh, highly tense. Remember, the Israelis have an interest in all this because Iran continues to threaten to obliterate, you know, wipe Israel off the map. And, and Israel has been responding by saying, okay, Iran cannot settle in into post-conflict Syria, into Syria itself, and into Iraq, creating an existential threat to Israel's existence. And Israel's on the cusp of an election. Uh, tomorrow. Mm. So uh, there's a lot at, lot at play going on here, but uh, the bottom line here is we are in a more perilous situation militarily and economically. If oil prices really are going to be affected, uh, this could lead to some kind of a ripple effect. Uh, the global economy was already shaky. Uh, will this kick it into recession? Uh Surprised at the extent of this ta- attack, are you surprised that these fields, or this industri- uh, infrastructure, isn't better protected? Well, that is a surprise, considering that Saudi Arabia has spent untold, by now trillions, but billions upon billions over decades, basically recycling petrodollars into the West by purchasing e- all kinds of military equipment. And this is a vital component of their infrastructure, and yet this got through. It might now raise... Uh, 
that's a very good question you raised. But it also raises a question, are we in a new era of military war? Because if, in fact, drones were used, hmm. they are cheap, and they're very hard to detect and very hard to stop. How sophisticated was this attack? It sounds quite. The precision of it is, I think, the most notable component. They seem to have hit very uh, specific targets very effectively, taking the infrastructure that they wanted to take out, they took it out, or at least severely impaired it. So the sophistication itself required reconnaissance, it required all the, all the components of a highly orchestrated uh, strike. Would that and, not lead you to who was behind this? Well, you know, the likelihood that Iran is behind this is very, very high. Yeah. I, I would like to point out China, because they're another power here, mm. and remember they're on the U.N. Security Council, has just weighted in themselves by saying it is irresponsible to lay blame at this time without the facts on any, anybody. How vulnerable are these sites? Will we see changes there? Uh, it's likely that uh, there will be uh, more protection of these sites, but let me just kick this up one higher level. We are now still relying in our world on petrochemicals that are vulnerable to this kind of interruption and which cause uh, climate change and which is considered, you know, by most people now, an existential threat of its own to our existence on the planet. So why are we still relying on Saudi Arabia and other similar states, Iran included, mm -hmm. and Iraq for that matter, which has huge oil reserves, and Venezuela, why are we still relying on states which are so, um, so prone mm. to authoritarianism, to, to ineffective governance, to using their oil resources in, in negative ways in the world? It may be time to use this crisis as a way to get more serious, to get off that old-fashioned kind of energy supply. Will the, will the chatter move that way or about self-sufficiency more to what the U.S. has done? Uh, in the last what, five to ten years, they've, they've virtually become more self-sufficient. Yes, with all my, of the, 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 conversation, the, the logic I was just uh, mm -hmm. uh, laying on the table was to lay it on the table. Right. It is not part of the discourse. It's yeah. not going to be the main result. Mm. The main concern immediately right now is the high-stakes uh, in terms of actual military conflict in a volatile region and bold um, action by one party. But remember, the other party, that is Saudi Arabia and its allies, have been pummeling Yemen uh, mercilessly mm. uh, all this time, and the world has done very little about that. What are the chances of another attack? The Houthis have just said, just now, a few minutes ago, they are warning foreigners to stay away from that facility and others like it, saying, do not put your people there. We can strike anytime we want, anywhere we want. Uh, you, you raised this earlier, the fact that they were using drones, you said up to 17. Uh, how does that change the discussion here? Quite a bit. It, it changes the dynamic of how... You can have asymmetrical warfare. It's, it's long been said that terrorism is the weapon of the weak, so a weak state can still 
you know, create havoc around the world by sending suicide bombers and so forth. But the introduction of, of drone technology and the advancement of it and the lethality of it really adds a whole new element to the equation of how you conduct a, uh, a modern defense and a modern offense. These drones are very cheap, and they are very hard to stop. They're very hard to detect. They're very hard to bring down. And that's kind of a, a new level, uh, a new arena of war in our current age. So what does the technology say about the aggressor? Uh, uh, do they have the technology to do this, or are they getting this from outside sources, as you suggested? Well, one could say that you can go down to the neighborhood store and pick up a I guess anybody can and, get a drone. Armor, but these yeah. are much more sophisticated yeah. drones than that. These are armed drones. The, you know, all states are now using them. Um, but the but how does this change the discussion, Elliot, if all of a sudden, uh, you know, uh, governments are spending billions of dollars on aircraft and whatever, and then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, 5% of the daily oil production is taken out uh, right. with 17 drones? Well, it's going to create a lot of uh, new war gaming and probably uh, a shift in where every state and some non-state actors uh, decide to put their resources. The lethality of the bigger, you know, our existing normal uh, methods of warfare, however, are also very much prominent in this theater. We have an aircraft carrier uh, grouping by the U.S., and I think they're bringing a second one. There's a very small confined space where a lot of conventional power is already in play where a drone could trigger this new, this cheap and different kind of military yeah. hardware mm. could trigger a wider conflict. Wow. Um, how will this play out through the rest of the week? Um, will we, will there be, well, I'm asking you to look into a crystal ball and there's no sense speculating, but uh, as this moves forward, will it intensify, do you think? One of the interesting things for me is how quiet the Saudis have been. Uh, apparently even on their, their authorized social media, as opposed to there's a prominent novelist there who's saying, you know, in Saudi Arabia, saying we should take out immediately all of Iran's uh, oil facilities, and we have the capacity for that. And maybe take out their nuclear facilities, but the the state-related uh, media and unofficial soft media kind of outlets have been very quiet. And you'll notice that Donald Trump has said, "Boy, we're locked and ready, but locked and loaded." I think he said this time. Yeah, and. But we are waiting, basically he's saying, the Saudis are going to tell us what to do and when to do it, is what he's saying. And the Saudis are so far being very cautious. This is a conflict uh, between Saudi Arabia and its allies and Iran and its allies, between Sunni and Shia, an immemorial contest for power in the region that's being carried out now with oil on, in the balance and with uh, the weaponry available uh, extremely advanced, and now this... Uh, this destabilizing technology of the drones. So we are, I don't know where it's going to go. I suspect that it's not going to lead to much because um, Saudi Arabia, uh, Iran has proven, proven it can push the envelope with the U.S. It can push the envelope with Saudi Arabia and get away with it because nobody actually wants war. Uh, we, we know uh, way back uh, Donald Trump pulling out of the Iran uh, yes. nuclear deal. How does this all fit in with that? Where Where is that left? Well, in, we probably it, wouldn't be in this situation 
if the U.S. if the U.S. hadn't decided to unilaterally launch onto a new path with Iran without having any clear-cut goals at the end or means of getting there. So is this Donald Trump's fault? Has he antagonized these people? Well, he certainly he certainly has introduced more uncertainty with less coherence behind it uh, into a region which already is you know, a perennial trouble spot and which is so critical to the global economy. So it's, it's clearly an absence of U.S. leadership here is a factor, or the kind of leadership that's been uh, demonstrated is a factor in all of this, because uh, the U.S. has been the balancer, the regulator, the, the um, guarantor, and all of that is waning. Hmm. What will this do for uh, over the next couple of weeks for oil prices and and, and the talk of uh, energy self-sufficiency, discussions yes, it, on that? I suspect it will add more weight to states which say, look, we just can't, we cannot rely on the old order. We have to find new ways of, of protecting ourselves and our supplies. I'm, I'm concerned for places like Japan, which rely on almost 100% on energy coming through, you know, out of the Middle East and through the, through the now Chinese um, increasingly dominated waters of the South China Sea on its way to Japan. There are a lot of states are not as lucky as, say, Canada or the U.S. in having any hope of energy self-sufficiency. Is, is Donald Trump, because he knows that U.S. has energy self-sufficient, uh, self-sufficiency, is that why he's playing a little loose here? I, uh, you're asking me why Donald Trump plays yeah, loose. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think Donald Trump. <laughs> I'm asking you yet again. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's there's two sides to this. One is, can the U.S. play a role in stabilizing rather than enhancing the potential of conflict in the region over this particular incident? That's its normal role. But the other side of that is, what about energy supplies? And I think that's tied into Donald Trump's reckoning of his reelection. I think the U.S. and Saudi Arabia are going to immediately step in, as they've indicated, to see to it that the missing oil as a result of this will be made up out of their emergency supplies because the U.S., uh, Trump does not want to have a recession. He doesn't want his economy damaged yeah. on the way to his own reelection. I think you'll see a lot of efforts to see to it that the crisis we're talking about does not actually lead to an economic crisis. And if this had happened 10 years ago, it would be a lot more severe than now. Well, we, we no? have more weapons now. Weapons. I, I'm just, even as far as supply and efficiency, yes. self-sufficiency. In terms of, in terms of um, energy supply, yes, we are in a different situation there. And, of course, Canada has a, a blue water issue over you know, yeah. our own potential. We're supposed to be an energy superpower now, and so we, we haven't made it. But, yes, the whole notion of how you fuel our world has been undergoing a lot of re-examination anyway, and the U.S. emerging as, you know, perhaps the, no- the number one energy producer. In like five years. Yes, but it's doing so in technology that's going to catch up with it. Mm-hmm. The, this fracking technology is going largely unexamined in its impact on the environment, mm-hmm. its impact on water supplies and, and water aquifers. And, you know, this is going to catch up, and we will be once again... Um, and, and you'll notice the U.S. is opening up for drilling areas that have been protected because of their fragility or their, their role in the ecosystem. Uh, so the, the demand to do more and more extreme things to sustain energy should be pushing us all into a whole new era 
of how do we want to generate energy and what steps are we going to take to get there. But I suspect this crisis is not going to be a big nudge in that direction. Mm, Good point. Elliot Tepper has been with us, Emeritus Professor of Political Science, Carleton University. Elliot, as always, thanks for the discussion. Much appreciated. Oh, you're very welcome. Let's keep an eye on this one. This is going to be interesting to watch over the next little while. Thank you, Elliot. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Ever since there was, I think, cable was invented, and I remember this. I remember being a kid and having a TV tower out the back of the house. We used to climb it as kids. Easy way to get on the roof. And the antenna up there. And, you know, uh, for the most part, you got a reasonably good reception for, I don't know, three, four, five, six stations. What more do you need, really? Uh, And then I, I remember the first time we got cable. And, you know, no snow, no static, no this, no that. And it was amazing. All of a sudden, your universe uh, went up a couple of channels. But ever since cable's been invented, uh, or was invented, uh, people have been trying to rip it off. Whether it's junction boxes. In the old days when you bought cable, I don't know if they still do this, but you had to pay per however many TVs you had in the house. And then as you know, time went on through the 70s and people got more and more TVs, you just get those little splitter boxes and... You'd have it all over the house. And then the satellite dish. Remember those monsters? They'd be the size of like the size of a skidoo trailer. Out in your backyard. You're wondering, is this give off some sort of radiation? Can this harm the kids? And then of course they started scrambling signals and la na 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 and now with streaming and the internet, same sort of thing. You can, hey. Guy in a white van. I got this little box. Opens up the back doors of the uh, back doors of the white van. Used to be speakers. You'd sit in the Fortino's parking lot. A white van would come up and try to sell you speakers. Now it's a little black box. Well, now I guess you can get them in stores. Shows you how much I know. I should ask the kids. I think they're beyond the box, though. I think the box is for old people. Is it not? We'll ask Carmi this. So, uh, you know, then you could get the little box and you could get everything. But you had to have at least the tech IQ of your kids in order to get it going. Now, I guess you can buy these at the Best Buys and wherever. And cable companies are getting ticked off that, you know, the little employee at the Best Buy is, hey, sir, you can do this. I'll show you how. And they're encouraging people to... Rip off the cable, I guess. So my question is, well, how can you not give instruction to a product you sell? Either the product's legal or it isn't legal. It'd be like going and buying a car and the guy not showing you how anything works. No, there's the key. You figure it out. you got a driver's license, don't you? Read the manual. You'll figure out how the AC turns on and off. What do you need me for? So, of course, if they sell the product, they're going to push it and tell everybody the benefits of it. Otherwise, why sell it? So uh, now, uh, I guess uh, Premium TV Network's Super Channel has filed a lawsuit against Canadian retailers for selling these pirate devices. Let's bring in Carmi Levy, tech analyst. He is with us now. Carmi, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Oh, great to be here, Scott. Thanks for having me. So let's start with what are these devices. Tell us what these are. 
Well, it's basically it's an internet-connected device. It look it does look like a box, a small box, kind of like uh, sort of like the old cable box of yore, uh, and it plugs into your TV, and it also connects to your home network either through a cable or wirelessly, more more likely. And what it does is it goes online. It's a streaming device. If you've ever used, say, a Roku Fire Stick or an Apple TV, um, yep. it's it's kind of like that. But instead of, uh, of of accessing subscription pay services, it it goes online and it finds services that mm, may be a little bit in the gray zone that you don't pay for. So basically, you buy this device once for sixty to sixty, two hundred, two hundred and fifty dollars, depending. And then you don't pay for programming afterward because it's going online and it's finding websites and services that aren't quite legal, that are accessing, say, that latest Pixar movie without necessarily paying for it. It's an easy way to get free content, not legally, if you don't want to have to fiddle with things, if you don't want to have to go to those websites yourself and figure it all out. Just plug this box in and it does all that nasty stuff in the background for you. But at the same time, you still are breaking copyright law. So how are these boxes legal? Are they legal? And if they aren't, how are they allowed to sell them? Well, there's a bit of a gray zone here in the legislative landscape and that there is no specific law on the books that deals directly with this technology. Because as you and I have discussed many times before, the technology has raced ahead of the laws that would govern it. So there really is no statute that specifically says these devices are illegal. How come? You know, because when you think about it, Carmi, as I said, people have been ripping off cable for years. So how is this not, how would this not be a red flag as soon as the technology is introduced? Oh, look, we're now on the internet. We're now streaming. Uh, These boxes are rearing their their ugly head. It's no different than it was in the old days. Why did they just not adapt as these things came out? Because it's not like it's a new issue. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, you're right. It has been around in various forms uh, since I was a kid. And, you know, your introduction makes that very clear. You know, once upon a time, we talked about pirate television, satellites, uh, splitting cable. Now this is the modern version of that. And I think it all comes down to who's complaining the loudest. And up until now, we haven't, you know, there are, uh, for example, Canada's major telecommunications companies, Rogers, Bell, um, have joined a consortium complaining to the CRTC, basically saying, this is illegal, you need to do something about it. Uh, so the complaints are being made, and for the better part of the last three years, these cases have been winding their way through the courts. But there's an interesting thing here. Our national regulator, the CRTC, has basically said they don't want, like, they don't want to deal with this, that it isn't where they need to legislate which I find kind of surprising because, you know, illegal illegal use of signal uh, really does strike me as right in the middle of the CRTC's wheelhouse. So, you know, why isn't it being, being dealt with? The short answer is it is, uh, but we're still in the middle of this great big dogfight. Uh, and where this is going to end up right now, uh, the snow globe has been shaken up. It looks messy. It looks chaotic. Uh, everyone's throwing their hands up saying, not me, not me. We don't quite have an answer to this just yet. We might in a couple of years, but right now we're still in the middle of what amounts to a very big, chaotic fight. Could this lawsuit make this make these rules a lot more clear? Is this going to be a catalyst where, you know, either, you know, here's the line, either you're within it or you're out of it, and these boxes are either legal or illegal? It could very well, because interestingly, they have not tried to involve the national regulator. This is a straight-up court case. Uh, and in Canadian common law, depending on how this plays out, this could set 
a precedent for all future cases. And so, uh, you know, this could be one to watch depending on, on how it plays out in court. Uh, this could be the template or the baseline by which future piracy cases online are judged and, and how they play out. So I'm kind of hoping that this is where that line gets drawn. I'm kind of hoping that this is the beginning of uh, a, a basic state of understanding of what is and is not legal, because uh, I'll be honest, Scott, I'm not comfortable with major Canadian retailers selling devices that are essentially gray market. You used to have to go to these little strange yeah, storefronts when yeah. you wanted to buy your your pirate TV equipment, and then eventually they would get shut down by legal action, and eventually the precedent was set, and you don't see those stores anymore. The fact that we're talking about Best Buy, the source, uh, Canada Computers, and London Drugs, you know, Canada's major tech retailers, mm. is frankly shocking uh, that they would sell this knowing full well what they're going to be used for and training their people to sell them, saying, oh, yeah, the content is free, without even asking, hey, gee, isn't there a copyright issue here that we may want to be aware of? It's kind of surprising. I would expect a higher ethical standard from some of Canada's major tech retailers. But on the other hand, isn't Best Buy just saying, you know what, this is a gray area we're losing out on, and so let's put them on the shelf, see what happens, and maybe that will instigate some clearer guidelines. Uh, that's possible, and and maybe long term it will lead to a resolution of, of 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 an area that, quite frankly, doesn't work in Canadian consumers' best interest. Consumers want to get a better deal on television and on entertainment, and if they're not getting it through legitimate channels, they've shown time and again that they'll they'll follow somewhat less than legitimate channels. So certainly we can make an argument for that, but you know, as we stand today, you know, never mind that they want to change the landscape for the future. As it stands today, it is uh, you're selling a device that that uh, that essentially makes copyright infringement as easy as plugging in something, and you're training your people to encourage customers to do just that. And obviously, if, where I stand is dirty pool. Yeah, and I mean, even uh, if these companies are standing on board or on board and and selling these things, then that leads the customer to believe that oh, obviously it must be legal. Best Buy selling them. That's the worry. They've basically legitimized piracy. Yeah. Um, should this be fought with the CRTC or should this be fought in court? Well, it looks like, you know, the CRTC has uh, thrown its hands up and said, we don't want to legislate. So it looks like we're not going to have much choice. It has to go through the court. Right. Um, but once that happens, Scott, it wouldn't surprise me if the CRTC is forced to finally do something. In other words, once mm. we have a legal precedent in place, our national regulator might finally uh, decide that, oh, yeah, now is the right time. Now that we have legal framework, now we can we can rule on it. We can do something. But the interesting thing here is this doesn't target uh, anyone but retailers. And really, the CRTC doesn't have a whole lot of of, uh, of uh, legitimacy ruling, uh, you know, in the retail space. It exists in the telecom space. And so um, it'll have to wait to see how this plays out. But I think eventually it will have no choice. We will have some regulatory action on this, too. So is it just big cable companies that are complaining about this? Yeah, Rogers, uh, Bell. Um, what about people ripping off Netflix? Yeah, well, it's, it's interesting because Netflix is, uh, and Netflix knows that a certain percentage of its revenue is kind of siphoned off, but they're, they're losing uh, revenue, but you know, the, a percentage of the market will try to find a way around their, their subscriptions. 
Um, and that's kind of they 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 acknowledge that that's the cost of doing business. It's uh, kind of like a shop. It's kind of like a shoplifter in retail. It's just you're gonna. It's gonna it happen. Sort of has. Yeah. You sort of know what percentage your shrinkage is. Like Super Channel says, they're losing twelve million dollars a year, which is no small amount. Netflix is probably losing in the hundreds of millions of dollars a year in lost potential subscription revenue. Um, and they, their legal teams certainly do go after uh, those who would who would violate those terms. Mostly in the U.S., there haven't been any major test cases here in Canada. But it wouldn't surprise me if, based on the outcome of this particular case, uh, if Netflix then finally says, hey, we've got a legal precedent, let's start launching some, some test lawsuits in Canada as well. It tends to attract a lot of attention from the major players, but up until now, we've been too, too much of a small fry for them to take note. How is the U.S. handling this issue? Oh, same thing. There, there are no, there is no issue. There, there is no legislation. There's so they're no in the law. same predicament. You can buy these units at reputable stores down there. Absolutely. Yeah. In fact, many of the devices that we get north of the border are, in fact, right. shipped through the U.S. first. This kind of started in the U.S. and uh, and it spread north of the border. And ultimately, it's probably going to get resolved there first. And then we'll just follow their lead. So really, now that this become really in the past, not a big issue because it's just a small percentage of overall revenue. But now once these devices hit the mainstream and the best buys of the world, that completely makes it a different story. That's why the challenge now. Exactly. There's yeah. a great big difference between, you know, my teenage son who, you know, can roll up his sleeves and yeah. play fast and loose with the rules and yeah. knows where to go and what to do, uh, which we know full well is gray area activity. And as a parent, obviously, we have these discussions. But it's a whole other thing when you walk through the, uh, a store that you've been shopping at for years, and it's a legitimate retail outlet, one mm. of the biggest in the country. And it's just sitting there gleaming on the shelf right next to the latest iPhone and the latest Android devices. So you're you're legitimizing what is essentially illegal behavior, and that's a pretty dangerous road to go down. So how easy would these units be to operate for the average person? I mean, like you said, if you're, you know, a teenager, you got ways around this, you you know, your spare time, you do this for fun. But, you know, when you're an average consumer who probably doesn't have the time for this sort of uh, investigation into it. Uh, are these units that come off the shelf of these stores, are they relatively easy to use? They're designed to be, and you know, we call it yeah. plug and play, which is basically you plug it in, turn it on, and then just follow the relatively simple instructions on mm-hmm. your screen, three or four steps, and you're in business. And so, you know, on the surface, they are designed to make what was once a kind of hacker-level activity something that's easy for any consumer to, to handle or walk through. But long-term, there's a bit of a dark side here, too. Because they're accessing illegally uh, uh, posted content, uh, that's constantly shifting. Anyone who ever did uh, you know, illegal pirated television knows full well, every few months you had to bring in your equipment or you had to update. A new stuff. code, yeah. Exactly, <laughs> yeah. because you know, you know, the content owners, as, as, as is their right to protect their intellectual property, were constantly trying to tighten the locks and protect themselves. And so the same thing happens here. The website in the back end that, that, that works today will probably not work six months from now. And all that software is going to have to be updated. So you can buy it today, plug it in, and it'll most likely work, and it'll be pretty easy to use. But long term, you know, when you're spending that 200 bucks on a device, hmm. there's no guarantee that 12 months from now it'll still be able to do what it's advertised to do today. 
and that's sort of part of the deal. If you if you dance with the devil at some point, you're probably going to get burned. That's my next question. How reliable all are these uh, good signals? Uh, is it a good signal? I mean, lots of people do this. They hotwire the system, but then halfway through, you know, dink it goes mm-hmm. out or whatever. So are these reasonably reliable? Eh, you know, it's, I, I call it catch as you can, and I've yeah. you know I've you know used them from a research perspective to get a feel for how reliable they are. Uh, are they as as robust as a legitimate service? That you is it worth the effort? Is it too much work? Uh, depends on how how much you want to roll up your sleeves and 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 play with it to keep it updated over time. Yeah. Most people don't want to. Most people don't have the technical acuity. Even if they did, it takes a lot of time to do that. So. You know, for a lot of people, a year later, uh, they're looking at, you know, I spent 200 bucks and I tossed it at the window. Mm-hmm. However, um, many, you know, many pirates will look at that and go, well, it was 200 bucks, but if I had bought a, a, a legit subscription, it would have cost me a lot more. So I'll just go out and buy another one. Right. They almost use that, use the savings to justify the illegal behavior, which, again, it's, it's another ethical gray zone and really a place where, you know, as a parent, I don't want my kid going, and I don't want myself going there, because what does it say about me as a person? Hmm. Uh, critics have argued it's impossible to stamp out technology that enables piracy, so the best solution is to offer affordable, easily accessible programming. What are your thoughts sure, on that? Right. Does that and, justify and anything? No, it doesn't. Um, you know, you know, gee, I don't, I don't like that that gas is going up because of what happened in Saudi Arabia. Over so I'm going to start time. stealing it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I'm going to steal it. You can't. You know, anyone who uses price levels as a, an excuse to justify stealing, because that's essentially what this is. You think it's a victimless crime, but it isn't. Think of all the the producers, the actors, the production crew, the musicians who don't get paid for their work, and eventually that market collapses. This is. Uh, not where we want to go as a society. It, it, we, it, it's a crime that has not large numbers of victims. It's incredibly damaging. Um, and using price as an excuse to justify theft, uh, no, that's really not very Canadian of us. How easy is this to control? How easy is this to police? You know, I, I, it's kind of hard because it's almost like a game of whack-a-mole. Every time they come up with a new technology to protect intellectual property, uh, a new form of box is introduced that, that circumvents right. that, that works around it. And so back and forth and back and forth we go. Um, and this will probably never end. A year from now, we might be talking about a whole other new technology that has replaced Android boxes as a way of getting free content. Um, and so if you are, if you're a television uh, channel or a network or a telecommunications company, you're constantly dealing with new threats to your intellectual property, to your holding on to your copyright. And people are always trying to chip away at the fringes. Um, and it's likely never going to end. This back and forth, is it's, it's been the way it is since I was a kid. It's probably going to be the way it is for, for as long as we're around. Tech analyst Carmi Levy has been, wi- uh, has been with us. Best Buy, Staples, and some other retailers accused of helping customers to pirate TV shows with devices that are sold in their stores. When is this going to come to a head, Carmi? Well, you know, this is uh, obviously the lawsuit has just been launched, and we all know how long it takes the wheels of justice to grind. So we're probably going to see, like, I, I, I would like to say months, but knowing, you know, there's, there's another case similarly you know, involving the telecommunications companies that has been around since 2016, and it's still working its way slowly mm-hmm. through the court. So uh, years, uh, you know, this will take multiple years. And unfortunately, by the time it gets resolved one way or the other, some new threat. Yeah, technology will be moved on, exactly. That's right, and, and that's the thing. The legal system is never fast enough 
to really effect proper change in a timeline that actually makes sense. It's always too slow. There will always be a gap. Tech analyst Carmi Levy has been with us. Carmi, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. So great being here, Scott. Thanks. Take care. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. We have talked at length on this show about the uh, opioid epidemic and fentanyl and and uh, this this crisis that has uh, uh, gripped the nation from west to east, and 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 really people have a hard time controlling this, hard time trying to figure out what to do, how to solve this problem. And uh, it seems that it has been an issue that's um, been up to the municipalities, the provinces, what have you, to to try to navigate their way through all of this, while the companies that have made uh, millions and billions of dollars off these drugs uh, get away scot-free. Uh, now that is changing, and more and more lawsuits are being filed against Big Pharma, uh, specifically Purdue, who were the uh, manufacturers of OxyContin. And now they are uh, having to pay up for some of these uh, lawsuits and and states that have sued trying to recoup uh, money that uh, individual uh, provinces, states, governments, what have you, have have had to put out in order to pay for treating all of these people. Well, now it appears that... um, that Purdue Pharma has filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy as part of its framework for settling litigation over the opioid lawsuits. Uh, does that work? Will it work? Is Purdue on the way out? To talk more about all of this, Marvin Ryder is with us, business professor at Groot School of Business, McMaster University. He is with us now. Marvin, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Glad to be here. By the way, your jam is great. I keep forgetting to tell you that. <laughs> Well, I'm glad you enjoyed it. When you were, uh, it, when, by when the you, way, it's it's uh, opioid free that gem, so you can have that without worry. <laughs> you know, I was about to say it didn't have as much as a kick to it as I thought it would, Marvin. But you know, <laughs> anyway, thank you for that. My pleasure. So, your thoughts on this? We've been talking about this uh, issue for an awfully long time. Yep. What is happening with Purdue? Why are they fi- uh, filing for bankruptcy here? Well, if you, if you don't mind, I'm going to go back a half a step, and then I'll get to Purdue in a minute. So just to put this in context, wh- why these are such groundbreaking lawsuits? Up till now, if a patient has had a problem, let's say they get addicted to something, the blame has rested almost solely with the doctors involved in this case. They've never held the drug company themselves responsible. Yes, we're selling you a, an addictive kind of drug, but it's not us that's the problem. It's the way the doctor has prescribed it to somebody, and that has been the standard rule up till now. Well, what has begun to change, and it actually began about six weeks ago with a lawsuit settled by Johnson & Johnson, uh, their drug, by the way, something you probably never heard of, it's called Duragesic, but it also is an opioid pain-killing kind of thing. There the argument was made to the courts, and the courts agreed that the drug company misled the doctors. So, yes, yeah, sure, the doctors have overprescribed these drugs, but the doctors were told that these drugs were not addictive, or certainly not as addictive as they've proven out to be, and also that they had very few side effects, which again is something proven not to be. And in all of these cases, what we're finding is internal company documents that said they knowingly, knowingly misrepresented these drugs. So uh, Johnson Johnson, first out of the gate, lawsuit settled $572 million. Johnson & Johnson's already appealing that lawsuit. Uh, but in the case of Purdue, OxyContin, boy, that's a name that's synonymous with the opioid crisis, 2,600, 2,600 lawsuits against Purdue, some by municipalities, some by states, provinces, even some countries. 
So they worked with these uh, various companies, and they announced about a week and a half ago a $12 billion, that's with a B, $12 billion settlement. Now, as part of that settlement, uh, because they don't have $12 billion in cash, they've actually pledged the company itself. So one of the things the judge is going to have to figure out is what happens to Purdue Pharmaceutical. But assuming that, for instance, the judge says, well, let's keep running it, but only use the drugs appropriately, any profit the company makes going forward would be pledged towards this $12 billion total. So this is not an attempt by Purdue to duck their responsibilities. This was actually negotiated as part of the settlement to say we're going to give up control of this company. Now, it's not 100%. So there are some people upset. The Sackler family, who historically has owned this company, is allowed to keep 10%. They're arguing, look, they made billions on this. They shouldn't even be able to keep 10%. And then another little wrinkle with the Sackler family, and this won't come as any great shock to you, some of the money they have moved offshore into offshore trusts. Um, technically or officially for tax purpose reasons, and that, that makes perfect sense to me. Many, many people do that. But uh, other people have argued, no, that's to hide it so it can't be grabbed and put into these settlements. So there's a lot of questions of whether the Sacklers are going to be held personally responsible. And through all of this, by the way, another part of this uh, agreement was that uh, the firm itself, uh, for the pharmaceutical company itself, never admits wrongdoing. So they're willing to pay these penalties, they're willing to do these settlements, but it comes stop short of them saying we did something wrong. And again, many people aren't very happy about that. Uh, would these lawsuits break the company? Would they take it out of business? Absolutely. Yeah. The company the company doesn't have twelve billion dollars lying around right. today. So although they've come up with that settlement number, it's based on future earnings or potentially even a sale of the company to somebody else. Um, so you're absolutely right. Just to give you another example of this, Scott, one that's close to home for us, you remember the Lac-Megantic tragedy. Mm-hmm. Most people don't remember the company behind it. It was called the Montreal, Maine, and Atlantic Railway. Right. They were the company that owned the train that got loose, derailed, did the drush destruction. That company does not exist today. The tracks still exist, and another company has purchased them, and they operate trains over this, again, with a lot of restrictions imposed by Transport Canada. But the company itself with all of those penalties, just couldn't afford to pay them all, and they went out of business. So basically what happens is, is instead, of, instead of killing the business here, the business keeps going to, to try to pay off some of this uh, right. penalty, but the owners lose control. The owners lose, yes, absolutely. So the owners get a little something out of all this. They're not taken down to zero, but 90% of the control goes elsewhere, and the court will have to be the one to decide that. Two possibilities. It sets up, in essence, a trust on behalf of these platons to run the, the company and pay back the, the money, or the court could say, why don't we just sell this to somebody else and then have them pledge as part of the sale some percentage of the revenue back and go from there. That will be up to the courts to sort out. So a uh, very good chance that Purdue could be up for sale. Absolutely. Uh, uh, because other than OxyContin, it really doesn't have much else out there. Right. And, and Again, what's the funny thing about all this now is the courts have, uh, and this agreement now says we all understand, we all understand now how addictive these drugs can be. So there will be no future case that will hold Purdue accountable. Uh, if in the future doctors misuse the drugs, it will now be the doctors themselves. Right. But this now sets the record straight based on the history. So what are the advantages or disadvan- and disadvantages for filing for the company and the victims? Well, the biggest disadvantage is whether $12 billion is the right number. In the case of the Johnson & Johnson lawsuit, 
500 and I think it was 92 million dollars. That represented the first year, one year of a 20-year program to get people off these drugs. So if you start doing the math, 592, 20 years, there alone was a, a situation of over 2.4 billion dollars, or excuse me, 24 billion dollars uh, over 20 years. But the court said we'll just hold you accountable for the first year. So 13 billion dollars, really, the cost of this, with wrongful deaths and otherwise, could be 100 billion dollars have people settled for too little. On the other hand, the company says, go ahead, if you want to get more out of us, but you're getting blood out of a stone, you'll get a moral victory, but we won't be able to pay. This is something that is doable. So for the victims, it's, you know, it runs a little hollow, I suppose. Uh, going back to the original family, the Sackler family that owned this, yeah. um, uh, do they have a say in any of this, or is this all out of their hands now? Well, in essence, they've entrusted this all to the lawyers who've proposed this settlement deal. Now, keep in mind, 2,600 lawsuits, a little over half of them, around 1,400, were part of this agreement on the the $12 billion. The lawyers representing the Sacklers are actually trying to get more of the jurisdictions to come on board. There are other jurisdictions that say, no, we're not going to be part of that settlement. We're going to go ahead with our own cases. And there the lawyers say, well, go ahead, but, you know, there may not be anything there for you at the end of the day. One of the key reasons for all this as well was that earlier this year, the founder of Purdue Pharma, the Dr. Sackler, the original Dr. Sackler, died. So his wife and his children and grandchildren who are inheriting, they don't really feel the same need to protect the family name. They just want to get this behind them. That's why their lawyers are suggesting the settlement. So how does the Sackler family feel about losing control over this? Well, you know, again, I think... Or has their money been made long ago? Yeah, I think that's really the key aspect. They made their money in the past. They've sheltered some of it. And uh, and they're saying, okay, fine, you know, uh, mistakes were made by Dad. Dad's no longer with us to defend himself. Yeah, we see the evidence, too. We understand how OxyContin is destroying America. And, and in fact, the argument is that using this Chapter 11, this bankruptcy protection proceeding, will actually get money in the hands of victims much faster than protracted lawsuits. could take a decade. Who knows where people are going to be a decade right. from now. Using this, it could be money within their hand in the next year. That's why they're even moving forward with this. They, they say they have responsibility, and this is the way to get money in people's hands quickly. How did uh, whoever was involved in this, because basically they're taking old opioids, old drugs that, that, that medicine had determined as lethal a long time ago, and then remarketed them and tried to convince doctors that they were safe. How could the original Dr. Sackler have fallen for that? I mean, when you look at this now, it just seems bizarre. Yeah, I know what you're saying, but I have to say it back to you. There are lots and lots and lots of drugs that doctors use that are toxic to you and I under normal yep. circumstances. Take uh, take some of the cancer drugs. You'd never prescribe it to a healthy person. It could do damage to their system. But if you're facing cancer, used appropriately, used appropriately, yeah. they are an effective treatment. So uh, what happens sometimes with drugs is a drug can have been invented, let's say, to solve one problem. I don't know, say a skin condition. And then 20 years later, further testing, you know, guess what? Yeah, it doesn't work as well for that skin condition anymore, but we've now discovered it grows hair, yeah. so we're going to recommend it for baldness. And we have seen over and over again drugs recycled, repurposed for different um, um different reasons given the research that gets done. So I'm not completely sure Dr. Sackler fell for something here. I think he was looking for it. Remember OxyContin original, the original purpose of OxyContin was to treat cancer patients, yeah. very, very sick people, under severe pain and help them in their final days. Or I, weeks I, or I just months. find it hard to believe, Marvin, that this is just all due to over-marketing. 
you know, because at the end of the day, that's what it was. It was a big wine and dine. It was a big, big yeah. marketing push to get the medical community involved in this. And, and and at the end of the day, it's it's the biggest sham in the world when you think of the victimization of this. I, I still have a hard time understanding how a company of this size got involved. Well, and at the same time, how good ethical doctors allowed yeah. themselves to come into this. I mean, this was this was not one person doing this. This no. was hundreds of people conspiring. I, I've seen stories about some of, for lack of a better term, I'll call them pill factories or pill dispensaries in the United States where doctors, completely under a sham, an addict basically comes in, has a $50 dispensing fee, and they'll write them a prescription with really no no significant metal testing whatsoever. There's a lot of people who conspired to this, and, and, and I don't know who all to blame on this. This is why we are blazing a new frontier. For the first time ever, we're actually holding pharmaceutical companies responsible for the claims they made to the doctors who were the gatekeepers. But again, that doesn't absolve the gatekeepers of their responsibility either. Mm-hmm. Plenty of blame to go around here. So uh, what do other companies, whether in the drug industry or not, what, what do other companies learn from this? Well, a couple of things. So first you should know that the, the pharmaceutical industry itself, just like the gun industry or other things, they have their lobbying groups. And the lobbying groups have come out and they're not happy with this settlement. They argue that it's casting a pall on the drug industry, that people will be less willing to do the research and development to launch new drugs, or they'll be less willing to make some promises if they're being held to the letter of these sorts of promises, what have you. I think a lot of that is just posturing on their part. Uh, we still understand that pharmaceuticals are a, a big, big, big billion, multi-billion dollar business. No one is shying away. So I don't quite take them at their word for that. But it's fair to say that now if I'm a regulatory group like the Food and Drug Administration in the United States, I'm going to be checking those claims more closely. I'm going to dig deeper. It's going to be more costly to launch a drug. And, and again, if you're someone who's suffering to find out that a drug might be delayed for red tape, this is that balancing act that's going on there. So, I, you know, I think drug companies are learning, uh, if they did not before, that the world has changed from the 60s and 70s. You know, you're going to be held to a higher standard, and these lawsuits are doing that. And I should also note, yes, we've talked about Johnson & Johnson. Yes, we've talked about Purdue. But they are still not the only ones. There are another series of lawsuits against another series of drug companies, and we're waiting to see how all those will be settled. And none of those, by the way, apply to Canada yet. Ours are still coming through the pipeline. Still lots of way to go here on this. So what, in your mind, what do you you think will happen with Purdue? I mean, is this a damaged, a a tarnished brand now? Well, again, here's the funny thing. OxyContin, used properly, is still one of the most effective painkillers out there. So Mm -hmm. if you are a cancer patient and you are under severe pain, and this might be your last two or three weeks on the planet, OxyContin, used appropriately, is the right thing to have you. Yeah. Hopefully, we're not throwing the baby out with the bathwater. I think they should still make OxyContin. I think they should still sell it. But we need to make sure the doctors fully understand both the good news and bad news with drug. I think patients need to understand this. Clearly, I, I hate to blame patients, but in California, there were people knowing exactly what they were doing, going to certain kinds of doctors who wrote these scripts without any effort at all because they were feeding their addiction. We all own a little part of this, and we all need to make sure these drugs are used appropriately. But used appropriately, there's still value here. So, yes, Purdue could still generate a billion dollars a year proper, proper, uh, profit, excuse me, profit selling these drugs because they are still good drugs. They just were used ineffectively before. Are you surprised we got to where we are and how long it took to get here? There's a lot of collateral damage. Yeah. Um, I'm going to say no, because, again, the drug companies felt they could hide behind the rule that held the doctor accountable. It's not us. It's not us. 
We didn't force you to take those pills. It was that doctor who gave you these bad prescriptions, hold him or her accountable for what they were doing. And this is trailblazing in the sense that it's the first time a court has actually found the drug company responsible. So I'm not surprised it took that long to get them to the table because they've never been to the table before on these kinds of things. On the other hand, in terms of the quote-unquote crisis of opioids, it's not new. We've been talking about them for a decade or more with a lot of frustration on the part of municipalities and provinces and states as to what they can do. Hmm. Uh, But again, if you go to the legal route, as opposed to people just doing the right thing, it takes that kind of time to work these things through the various courts. And and as I said, even now there are still many, many lawsuits that are still working their way through. This is far from over. Does this change public perception of big pharma? Well, because <laughs> like you said, it's a double-edged sword. Uh, yeah. If you're if you're if you've got cancer, you need them. On the other hand, we have yeah. this. Well, uh, let me say, big pharma in the last ten years has had a tarnished reputation. Uh, we have heard about other things that they have done, other things that, where they knew that some things weren't right. So we've already developed, I think, a healthy mistrust of big pharma. Um, this does nothing to improve that, and if anything, digs it just a little deeper. Again, I want to say that there are good companies out there, but you remember, I'm sorry, I can't give you the name of it. This was two years ago. This young fellow bought this company. It was making very old drugs, and he suddenly jacked up all the prices on it. Oh, I remember that, yeah. He's actually in jail now. And he became like the most wanted man in North America. (laughs) Most most hated hated. man, yeah. Well, most wanted and most hated at the same time, and now he's in jail. You know, that was another case that said, wait a minute, are you really doing what's right? We understand you've got to get a return on the investment from making drugs. Nobody nobody begrudges you that, but you don't need to jack it up that much. These things have all caused people to look at big pharma with a with a, a jaundiced eye, so to speak, and I don't think any of this helps. <laughs> uh, big uh, or Purdue, the only one to fall here are the others. Will because theoretically it will be sold. The families lost control of it. Um, will will other companies follow the same fate? Well, I I I, I mean I don't know for a hundred percent certain. Something like Johnson is Johnson is so big or Pfizer would be so big, I think they could continue on and pay their debts. But when you have a more single product company the way you do Purdue, it seems to me it's inevitable. I, they may be the first casualty, but I don't think they'll be the last. I could imagine three, four, five more, maybe not in 2019, maybe in 2020, 2021, following this road as well. Uh, opioids, these these very addictive drugs were so popular for so many companies. Why? It it didn't cost you a lot of money to make the ingredients, and yet you could sell them and make a lot of money from the sales. And I'm afraid you're going to see more follow suit. It's just a question of when. Uh, Purdue Pharma has filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy as part of its framework for settling litigation over opioid lawsuits. Marvin Ryder has been with us, business professor at a group school of business, McMaster University. Marvin, as always, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Glad to be here. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.